First John chapter 2, 18 and following, says this. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. And then particularly this verse is what we'll cover today. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need, no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You can be seated this morning. In 2002, I was uh, 20, I turned 24 that year. And I started ministry on March the 4th of 2002, and by that fall, um, I, or in March of 2002, I was, I was led to this church, and uh, they hired me, they actually called out to me and asked me to come be their youth pastor at this church, and, and so I went, I had no seminary experience, no pastoral experience, but they believed that I was the guy. And so literally, I remember my first day of, of working at this church, I had quit my job, and people at my job, I was working in a factory here in Bowling Green, and, and they kept coming to me and saying, like, you're, gonna be a, you're leaving here to be a pastor. They were like, what are you going to do all day? Which was a great question. Um, but I remember being led to my office on my first day of work at this, at this church, and I only had one book, and it was the Bible. And uh, they led me in there and they said, all right, here's your office and this is Lisa, she's your secretary. Go at it. And that was literally it. There was no training. There was no explanation. There was no how-to. I was literally led into a group on Wednesday night and, and literally the other pastor had moved to a different position. The youth pastor had moved to a different position and literally said, all right, guys, and they were not ready for this. They said, okay, I'm done being the youth pastor. Here's the new youth pastor. Here he is. This is Eric. Go for it. And he left the room. And there was a hundred and something kids and high school students. And I was like, I was like, I learned, Lord, I lift your name on high. Can we all do that or something? I mean, it was really awkward. 
And I was just drowning in this sea at this mega church on how to pastor these kids. I'd had no experience, no training whatsoever, um, and it was, it was really tough, really, really, really tough. It was a pressure cooker environment to achieve a results of which I didn't have any clue of how to even achieve those uh, results. And so I went to this conference. They sent me to this conference that fall. It was my first youth conference, and this was a big rah, rah, rah for a big youth pastor. So imagine a bunch of eclectic, weird adults all gathering in an auditorium for several days, and they're youth pastors. And if you've ever been around a youth worker or youth pastor, they're interesting people. So I go, and I'm one of these people. We all look alike, dress alike. I'm saying, this is really strange. And Laura was with me. It was in Nashville at this time. And I remember at one of these talks, a, a guy whom I had never heard before uh, got up and uh, gave a sermon at this moment in time, I would have said, was one of the best sermons I'd ever heard in my entire life. He was cool. He actually wore glasses like the ones I have on. I don't know if there's some sort of unconscious thing that why I have these or not. Um, he dressed like I did. He looked like I did because I used to have hair. And I just thought that this dude was the coolest. He was about 6'2", 6'4", something like that. Skinny as a rail, you know, alternative looking guitar playing guy. And I just thought this man is amazing. And he preached this sermon, and I was listening to this sermon. I remember by the end of this sermon, him talking about all sorts of things, and me just thinking about, man, this is the history of the scripture. I mean, he's nerding out. And so I'm sitting there nerding out alongside of him, and then he connected all of this history to the person and work of Jesus, and I was just like, mind blown. I remember just sitting there um, in this sea of youth workers just weeping before the Lord. And, but I came home from that training with all sorts of ways to be a youth pastor. And I started implementing those and we started seeing growth and the metrics that they wanted me to reach. I started reaching those metrics. I started getting calls from people all over in the country. Come be our pastor. Come be our youth pastor. Because I was dunking all these kids in the baptistry all the time. They thought, well, if he's doing it in Bowling Green, Kentucky, surely he can do it wherever we are. And I just remember not only listening to that pastor, but I started listening to that pastor weekly. I started paying attention to that pastor over and over and over and over and over again for years. Even after I was going to seminary, I was like, man, these guys are really good at head knowledge. But this pastor right here, he has the ability to take this head knowledge and make it palatable for people to understand and to get I became just completely immersed and engrossed. I started using, he came up with these videos that, that we started using in our youth ministry to kind of kickstart our conversations. And guess what they were? They were great cinematography. The, the message was really, really good. They were super creative. Again, this is like my long lost brother. I have found him in this Guy, I hung on every word this man said. I was pushing his books onto people. I would buy them for people. I had a whole collection, library, every book that he came out, I was there ordering it, getting it, buying it, passing it out to everyone else. I talked about him all the time. I quoted him all of the time. 
Several years later, now I'm 27 years of age, we have just found out about cash. And I was in a bad, bad place. And for years, even though I was surrounded by pastors, when people would say, who, my, who is your pastor, Eric? I would never mention my lead pastor's name. I would always mention this guy's name. That's my pastor and he doesn't even know it. Some guy who doesn't know me and I only know him because of his podcast and his preaching and his books. By the time I'm 27, Laura and I are in an earthly bad place. The grief is overwhelming about cash. And I was being told from my currently pastor that any time that you had a problem as a pastor in your marriage, what you should do is, is you should work more in the ministry. Because if you will work harder in the ministry, then God will take care of your marriage. So the more problems we had, and the more problems we had with our son and his diagnosis, the harder I would work. Meaning, I would be gone even more times throughout the week. I would be gone, I would leave by 8 o'clock, I would go to the gym from 8 till 9, and almost every night, 7 days a week, I would come home about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Why? Because I was trying to save my marriage, I was trying to help my kid, and so I just worked more and more in the ministry. And so by 27, I'm a miserable mess, I'm starting to work on my doctorate degree, and I need to go to a conference. So this guy who I've been following, who's my pastor for years, I go to his church. And I'm sitting in his church. To me, this is like the Mecca place, right? This is like the holies of holies. If Jesus is coming back, he is coming back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, for whatever reason, to this church. He will stand there, and this will be the place. And so I go to this conference. And again, what am I hearing? All of this great biblical teaching. Also, I'm hearing from a pastor, him pastoring pastors, of which I was not getting in my own church. And on the last night, it was like a camp. Have you ever been to youth camp before? The last night is always like this big, like emotional, like, woo, right? And so this time, though, it's all pastors. And on the last night, he starts talking about marriage and ministry. And I've come there with a deeply wounded heart from the church that I was working in, and also from my own situation in my own marriage. And I remember that night, him doing this very kind of youth ministry sort of thing of, of calling pastors to this kind of altar that they had. They were in the round, this church was in the round, and so he could speak in all different directions. And they had people from their church and pastors and ministers all around it is like, man, if you have a deeply burden, if you're wounded, if you're hurting, um, then we want you to come talk to these people. And I remember being there with some other pastors I worked with and, and several of us, but, but me, I was like, man, I can't get there quick enough. And I remember going in that very moment, in that church, for years, I had been listening to a lie from my lead pastor. I think his intention was well. But what he believed about ministry in your marriage was a lie. It was wrong. But I believed it. And I remember in that moment listening to that pastor and hearing those very words and, and, and just being completely convicted by the Holy Spirit that I've got to make some changes in my marriage. I could not wait to get home from that conference. 
When I got home that day, I ran into um, our house at the time off of Elrod Road, and I remember having a conversation with my wife of, of I don't know if it was figuratively or if I literally did this, but I, I remember um, confessing all of this to Laura, but how I had done her wrong and how that I had been misled, and I don't think that anybody was trying to mislead me. I think that that's what they really believed. But that from that day forward, I was never going to sacrifice my wife and my kids at the altar of ministry for the sake of my own name or for the pressures of other people and other pastors. They can fire me. I don't care. No longer will you get the crumbs from my life, but you'll get the very best of me. And literally since that day, it's been imperfect, yes, but since that day as a 27-year-old, my wife can tell you and I can tell you that our, our marriage in our lives and the way that I function in ministry is completely different. There are many times that I'll say no to you. And I say that in order to say yes to my wife and my kids. Because here's the deal. You do something bad in your marriage and you get to keep your job. I have a bad marriage and I lose my job. My marriage is a part of who I am. It's a part of my very qualifications and resume for ministry. I will not sacrifice them on the altar of ministry any longer. It changed my life. Set me on a new course. Been much healthier because of it. Now, I say all of that this morning to say this. That pastor of that church is no longer a Christian. I'm not talking about the church I came from. I'm talking about the pastor in the church that I fell in love with. He no longer follows Jesus from a biblical standpoint. I literally have kept his books and I don't know what to do with them. I sure as heck wouldn't give them to anybody. And I sure would not want you to read them. I mean, you got to understand the, the discrepancy here and the burden here of, of I mean, I, I, I loved this man. I loved his ministry. It had great influence on me early on but as the years went on even in his own church he could not stand before them any longer and say I hold to these convictions and so he left he's denied completely or not hope completely who, the, who Jesus is he has some weird beliefs about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do but he's completely departed from the church. He left his family, or he didn't leave his family, but he, he left his church family. He's moved to, to, to California, and he hangs out with Oprah quite a bit. This man who I loved, this man whom I would suggest to you God used to change my life, is no longer following Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And that's really tough. It's really tough. We learned last week in this passage that within the church itself, 
um, that there are, are people in the church at Ephesus um, that are no longer a part of the community. They were once members. They were once uh, belonged to, devoted to this local body in the city of Ephesus. And John is writing them because now many of those favorite church members have left the church because they are denying certain truths about Jesus and they have departed from the church because of those things. And, and this is causing major conflict within the church because there are those of us who are left or there are those of the people who are still left in the church of Ephesus who are wondering, man, how can my Bible study leave? leave? How can my mom and dad leave the faith? How can my sister, my brother, my cousin leave the faith? And it's left this assurance problem in those who are remaining. The denial of the biblical Jesus and his word. And the departing from the church reveals, as the scripture says in this passage that we just read, that they never were Christians. See, John is constantly contrasting in this book, as we've talked about, um, positives and negatives, right? Light and, and, and dark. Love of the world versus love for God. Warning versus comfort. And, and last week and this week in this passage, because we're going to cover the same passage next week, is, is we've been looking at the negatives. So last week we looked at the negatives of, of them denying the person and work of Jesus and then them departing from the church. And this week we're going to look at another negative. So stay with me. Make sure that you come back for the good news that is next week. Because today is definitely a warning text more than anything else. Those who have denied and departed have had great influence in the church. And therefore, their influence still remains within the congregation. As I asked last week, imagine with me just for a moment that the person who has the most Christian influence in your life, let's all think about that person. The person has the most Christian influence in your life. Imagine getting a call from them tomorrow and them telling you that they no longer believe. Would that shake you? Would you become sad? Would you become depressed? Would you have anxiety over that? Would you begin to go, man, if, if so-and-so could, could walk away, if, if, if for me, if a man like Richard Carwile, my discipler in college, was to call me tomorrow, he's a pastor at Bloomfield Baptist, if he was to call me to, tomorrow and say, I'm leaving the faith, man, that would really jar me. And that's what's happening inside of this church. It would affect us. It would wonder, it would make us wonder, man, are these people right? Are they right? John is going to go on to say something else about these people who have denied Jesus and who have departed from the church. He goes on in verse 26 to say, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Not only have they denied the person and work of Jesus, as it says in the Bible, but, but they've all de also departed from the church. But in leaving the church, they have become evangelistic in their ways of thinking. 
They're trying to still call, email, text. They're still trying to have coffee conversations with you to to get you who remain connected to Jesus and connected to the local church. They're trying to convince you of your, your, man, you're lost. Like you you don't understand this. And so we're going to see today that there is great deception of those who have deconverted from the Christian faith. That those who have deconverted from the Christian faith, from the biblical truth, that there is great deception in those people. Now, I don't think necessarily that they are coming out and saying, I'm trying to deceive you. That's not how it works. Oftentimes, these are morally good folks. They're nice people. You know, they don't unveil themselves. They don't even think that they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And yet, this is the way that sin, Satan, and death is is using their beliefs and their power and influence over those who are remaining inside of Christendom in order to distort them and to deceive them and, if possibly, win them over to this new way of thinking. This idea, this idea of deconversion, if you've not caught up with this, from a global perspective, the idea of, of deconversion is also known as what they're calling a deconstruction of their faith. What do we mean by that? Well, over the past several years, popular, very popular celebrity Christians have come out as, as no longer being Christians, or at least Christians from a historical perspective. These have been famous pastors, authors, singers, entertainers. Um, However, this also happens on the local level, which deceives many into following after them. So what is a deconversion or a deconstruction faith? These are people, again, who have been sitting in the pews, maybe many of them for years, or, or standing behind a pulpit proclaiming the things of Christ, and yet at this stage in their life are now professing that they no longer believe in the biblical Jesus, or they no longer believe that the, the Bible is historically accurate, or that we should have faith in this, that they have come to not believe the same way that you and I believe. Typically, people who deconvert or deconstruct their faith have a tendency to land in in these three camps from what I've seen. They go from being quote-unquote Christians, and I do use those in quotes because they're professing that they were Christians to begin with, to one of the camps is, is atheism. Atheism is the belief that there is no God whatsoever. So there are people who live the, leave the Christian faith who now declare that they don't believe in God whatsoever. The second camp that a lot of people fall into, and which is a, a dominant camp, is, is people will leave the Christian faith in order to become what they call hopeful agnostics. What do they mean by hopeful agnostics? Hopeful agnostics are people who, who would say things like, we don't know that there's not a God. There's a high probability that there is a God, but we don't know who he or she is. And so we're hopeful that they do exist. And we're hopeful that we're good enough people that whatever they have for us after this life, that we'll be welcomed into it. They're hopeful agnostics. 
But then there's a third group, which I actually think is the most dangerous, and this is maybe even a, a more modern take on this, and these are what I call newly enlightened versions or beliefs about Christianity. These are people, like the pastor who I'm talking about, who still professes to be a Christian, and yet denies things about Jesus, and also takes in this idea of how he should culturally live out his Christianity. I literally heard him say this week with his wife that if Jesus was to show back up, he would be completely astonished at the Christianity that we created because it was never his intent to do so. He claims to have a new version. Many of these people who have walked away um, haven't necessarily walked away from being Christians. They're still professing to be Christians. And yet when you, when you press into them about ideas about who Jesus is or what the Bible says, they would completely disagree with you. They would be enlightened. that they, they have come to this new knowledge, this new understanding of the Old Testament and the creation story and, and why Jesus really came and, and the meaning of the church and the meaning of what it means to be a true Christian that we're the subgroup and that we're now have been awakened we still love Jesus we still love the idea of Christianity and yet when you look at what they're saying compared to what the Bible says there are great discrepancies and I believe that that's even more dangerous than the atheist and the hopeful agnostic is this new as a man named Brian McLaren has written a book called A New Christianity. Deconversions are not new, are they? Remember back in the fall, we were working through the book of 2 Timothy and the Apostle Paul identifies his friend Demas and several other books with inside the Paul's writing. He talks about how awesome Demas is, that he's a fellow worker of the faith, a fellow worker with him in the spreading of the gospel. And yet when we get to 2 Timothy, what does Paul say about Demas? He says that he has given up on the ministry because he's fallen in love with this present world more than God, and he's walked away. And Pastor Justin, if you go back to our podcast, you can listen. He has a sermon titled from that passage called Don't Be a Demas. But it's this person who was seemingly faithful, and yet they walked away. Is there any clearer picture of deconversion than Judas himself? I mean, think about this for a moment. Judas walked with Jesus. He preached alongside of Peter. He cast out demons. They, they healed people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Judas was in and amongst all of that. He saw it. He, he witnessed all of that. I mean, touch, taste, feel Jesus. Can you get that? I mean, by the time we get to the Passover meal, Judas, it's believed, is sitting in the, the seat of greatest honor next to Jesus, the host of the meal. He's the treasurer. And yet when it all came down to the very end of his life, he did not believe in Jesus in the way in which the Old Testament said he should believe in Jesus. Jesus didn't meet his expectations. So he denied him. He went away from him. 
There's this great, great quote from the Gospel Coalition about deconversion. It says, deconversion stories are designed not to, to reach non-Christians, but to reach Christians. And their purpose is to convince them that their outdated, naive beliefs are no longer worthy of their assent. A person simply shares his testimony of how he once thought like you, but now has seen the light. Usually when a person of influence, either locally or globally, moves in the direction of their, their doubts, concerns, and opposition, Christianity, or at least biblical Christianity, causes others who have listened to them to be easily deceived as well. I mean, let's face it, we live in a time, you guys, where cultural influence has greater influence over us than a flesh and blood local one does. I mean, never before has the idea of being a professional gamer been more important. Why? Because you can go on YouTube and watch grown men play video games. So you're not even playing the video game anymore. You're watching a grown man play a video game. I can't tell you how weird that is. That's a, whole, that's a coffee conversation if we need to have that. But that's really strange. But we, we also live in a, in a status where we, we call them Instagram influencers or YouTube influencer, or cultural influence, where these people literally become famous by not doing anything. And yet, try to have a conversation with a teenager who's being deeply influenced by these influencers. And what they say and what they do carries way more weight in their lives than you and I do, and we're right in front of them. Isn't it crazy? By confession, knowing that this sermon was, was coming, I've, I've spent the last month listening and reading to de deconversion stories. And let me just say this, they're extremely powerful. You are easily sucked in to the vulnerability Many of them, how well they know the Christian system, how well they know the Bible, how well they know Christian culture. They're not speaking as one who is militantly against the people who have been inside. And if you're a person and you're, you're struggling or you're having doubts or you're immature in your faith and you begin to listen to these stories, I want you to know that you can be easily deceived. They're extremely attractive. They sound smart. Even, even confessionally before you, as I, I mean, I've listened to now hours and read hours of these things over the last four weeks in preparation for this moment today. And I can't tell you how, in the quietness and stillness of my own heart and looking at my computer, that, that I would be lying to you if I didn't ever have moments where I went, wait a second. That sounds really right. And I'm a person who I think I know the Bible. Hmm, I'd, I'd get a D plus. I'm pretty secure in what I believe. And yet, after feeding myself hours upon hours upon hours of this, 
I felt myself being convinced and having to ask myself really tough questions about what I'm hearing. Because when, when they're on there, let's, let's all be really honest, and, and maybe for you, you don't have space in your Christianity for this. But there needs to be. That's part of, I think, the problem. But when you're sitting there and you're talking to a former, what we know as a Christian, a former person who's used to profess Jesus, and they're talking about how exhausting it is trying to be a Christian, can you go, yep. Or when you start talking about um, they've seen the underbelly of some churches, and it was really dirty and nasty, and they couldn't handle it. Or that they're stressed out. Or that their lives are so busy and church just became one more thing to do on a Sunday morning or one more expectation on a Wednesday night and they want us to go to a prayer meeting and they want us to go to women's ministry and they want us to do this and this and, they, and they're sitting there and they're like, man, when we left the traditional view of Christianity, it was like, <sighs> you ever quit a job before or moved on to another job? You know that feeling. Where maybe you even loved it, but you're hugging on everybody, but you walk out that door and you take that big deep breath. Right? That's what many of these stories sound like. They start talking about the new community that they have. How accepting it is. How loving and generous it is. And this is only more dangerous because guess what they are? Likeable, credible, compassionate people. And you've been reading their blogs because they've got great thoughts on marriage or great thoughts on raising your kids or being a mom or being a dad or they've created cookbooks and, or that, that, that they're just really funny. They're not yelling up there. They're not barking at me. They're not sweating like Pastor Eric. Right? They're not raising their voice and, you know, y'all make fun of me because I do my hands like that all the time. Right? Spirit fingers. Right? But they're just calm. They're behind a computer. Of, they're sitting at the table of dim lighting. And they're calm. And they can speak the language because they've grown up in this. They've believed it for years. And it just draws you in. And we don't know how to navigate the good things that they say with the things that are really shady. Because if I believe this like them, my natural logical mind says then I should also believe this like them. They make a lot of sense. What a brilliant move. What a brilliant, a brilliant, and I hate to give him credit for this, but what a brilliant tactical move by Satan. What happens when you start killing us Christians from the outside in? We grow. Look at our history. Right now, more and more people are probably being killed in Africa for their faith than anything else. And as we heard from Pastor Justin a few weeks ago, coming back from Africa, where do they believe the central hub for Christianity will come from in the coming years? 
Africa, where they're chopping off your heads for believing in Jesus. And what happens? We're like gremlins. You kill us, and it's I mean, just multiplied all over the place. So when that stops working, because it has the counterproductive you know, consequences, what do you do? Listen to this. Imagine this coming from Satan. I'm going to raise up men and women in the church. They're going to be intelligent, creative, charismatic, full of compassion and care for others. They're going to learn the Bible well. Many of them are going to go to seminary, be missionaries, Sunday school teachers, have great marriages, raise their kids. They're they're going to be looked up to, have influence over. And when they've built up enough followers, I'm going to have them reveal that they're no longer Christians. And that's what's happening in the church at Ephesus. And that's what's happening specifically in American Christianity where the celebrity has more weight and value and truth than the Word of God. Satan is known and described as in the Bible as the deceiver, isn't he? He plants seeds of confusion, over-questioning, doubts, stretching God's character in His Word. Humanity was deceived by a conversation, wasn't it? Have you ever thought about that? Satan is a great communicator. When people are debating, um, you know, the idea of, of any kind of topic... Even if you've paid attention to the, like the recent debates, I haven't watched any of them, but I've read synopsis about the, the recent debates. Is like, we don't care if people, when they're debating, if they're spouting truth or not. But we always say those who communicate the best are those who have won. We can be so misled by a great communicator. Often the Antichrist, or Antichrist, multiple, they have a platform. They're pastors, worship leaders, Sunday school directors. They're, they're leaders. They have people who follow after them. They're smart. They're charismatic. They have the ability to woo people. They can be inviting, charming, and polite. But, but let us not forget that our descriptions of Satan from the Scripture is not one of a monster and a demon with a pitchfork, but is one of beauty. We are led astray by beauty. Lust of the flesh, desire of the eyes, the pride of life and possessions from 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. In a culture where we have technology be more connected with anyone on the planet, yet we are the most alone generation ever. So when people on the internet create a community through writing videos, podcasts, and they say things like we're accepting to all ideas, and they do that with vulnerability, when they do that with authenticity, when they share stories that other people can relate to those stories, man, it captures our ears. It captures our affections. When we're not getting this in our real lives, but there's someone out there who's speaking our language, That's very enticing. One of the things that I read and heard this week was 
responses to people sharing these new testimonies of leaving Christianity and how freeing it was, was one of the quotes was, after hearing your story, it helped me to have the courage and to take the next steps in my own. I no longer feel alone. I want to share my own story. The response from these people who deconverted, they said, we've helped so many people because we were willing to share this. Again, it's so enticing. It's so alluring. It's We can be easily swept up into this. And I believe that that's the tension that's taking place inside of the church at Ephesus. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is a warning text. It's the reality of of where we are in 2020 of the, the easily deception that as much good that can come from technology, simultaneously, sin, Satan, and death is using those things. But it's not just an internet thing. It happens in a local church all the time. As people will often no longer pursue the biblical truth themselves, but are just wanting the professional Christian, the one you pay, right, to put this guy up in front of you, and he's charismatic, and he can win people, and he's, he's funny, all these sorts of things, and he can say whatever. And, and let's all face it that when these things begin to happen, that it creates a movement, that it's intoxicating. That once one of those dominoes begins to fall, they all begin to fall. Particularly the ones that I've been listening quite a bit to. It's, it's not only affected, these were several men that I was listening to pr- primarily. That guess when, when it fell for them, when Christianity could no longer, they could no longer hold to the orthodox view of Christianity... After some time of mourning and tears and grieving, so went their wives and their kids. So have other people been reaching out to them now and saying things like, we're going we're gonna to come out of the closet in this new way. Brothers and sisters, whether you're familiar with this or not, there's a small but growing movement, particularly in American ideals, of that we need to empty the church. And it is gaining speed rapidly. It is multiplying far quicker than the church itself is multiplying. Here's some common things. I've got to do this quickly. Again, I wish I had more time to to dive into these things. But here, here, here are uh, one, two, three, four, five issues in which I'm seeing a common thread in those who are leaving Christianity or leaving what we call biblical Christianity that are being swept into and therefore are evangelizing those of us who still remain. And this seems to be the issues. One is their view of God. They begin to ask questions about, and I I think it's okay to ask the question. We've got to remember this morning that there's got to be space for the struggler. 
There's got to be space here for those of us who have doubts and struggles and questions and all that sort of place. Because for so long, once you became that person who was asking some tough questions, what did they do in the church? They treated you like it was Sparta and they kicked you into the pit. There must be room for those of us who are on this spectrum who are wrestling through these things, or at least asking these questions. But for some of our friends who have left the faith and are trying to lead us out of the faith, they're they're having a really hard time with the character and nature of God. How could God send people to hell is their perspective. I think there's a major theological issue with that question. I can't go into it today. How could God kill off whole groups of people in the Old Testament? And that'd be right. It's a tough question. The second thing is, is what is leading them astray, deceiving them, which I think is also trying to deceive us, is a common thread that I'm seeing in these deconversion stories is intelligence. Particularly, I believe that the most largest, and I, I don't have, I'm just, this is a guess, this is a preacher stat from my own mind. But as I engage with college students and as I read these stories, science has become the new religion. Science has become the new religion. And so when you take scientific discovery and you you try to read the scripture from that, what do you get? A lot more questions. When science is saying they can take a, you know, a piece of dirt and tell you how old it is, like just recently they found a bird completely encapsulated in ice. Did anybody see this article? And they determined, I think it's 46 million years old. And as a college student, I had a Christian at the church I was attending at the time tell me that if I didn't believe that the earth was a literally seven days old then I, and that there weren't dinosaurs on the ark, then I probably wasn't a Christian. Now, I've I've come way more to landing where I land, but as a college student who was a new Christian asking questions, you can understand that I was like, huh? Brothers and sisters, the, the Bible isn't a science book. There are lots of questions there because it's not its intent. It doesn't mean that it's no less true. But for a lot of our friends and people we're encountering, they're they're leaving, younger people are leaving the church in droves, and a lot of it has to do with that it doesn't scientifically make sense. A man got swallowed up by a fish and lived in that belly for three days. Explain that one scientifically. All kinds of people have tried. I don't know how successful they've been at it. But these are the sorts of things that people begin to talk about. They begin to talk about evolutionary theory. They begin to talk about science and how the earth is and, and all of these sorts of things. And I, I think within the church that we need to create space within grace to have that dialogue. I think we do. I still have some of those questions that aren't answered for me. 
And yet, simultaneously, I'm convinced more than ever that Genesis to Revelation is true. That it is absolute truth. We've got to live in that tension. The next thing is, of why I see a lot of people leaving Christian faith and trying to get other people, even if they're not intending to do it, is their view of God, intelligence, science. Three, pain, grief, and suffering. Something really painful happens in their lives. And I don't mean this offensive, but this is what I'm getting from my friends who have done this, is that it seems much easier in their true pain and true grief to kind of flip God the bird and go about their business. Because how, if God loved them so much, would they have this much pain? They've lost a kid. They've lost someone that they love. They have this constant um, ailment. I've said this before. I mean, again, most families like mine don't go to church. That's for sure. It'd be much easier for our lives if we didn't. But you're talking about somebody with chronic pain. or I know of a pastor, he's had 20-something miscarriages. And he has a, a tattoos of all those numbers going across his chest. And one of them is circled because it's the one that made it. But in honor and memory, he just has numbers all over his chest and back from the 20-something miscarriages. Something tragic happens in their lives. Brothers and sisters, we've got to have room of grace to walk along people who are going through things that you aren't currently going through. And the way that that rattles their faith. Number four is their emotions. Emotions is the new driver. Particularly, we live in a culture where love is love. But biblically, that's not true. There's a a love of which God loves, but there's also simultaneously a love of which God hates. He just told us in 1 John, do not love the world. But we're being bombarded within our culture and there are people who are saying that they still follow Jesus but that love is the ultimate. Even on my way, even while I've been here, I was listening to someone who I really like and they've left the Christian faith and they, and they even said in this, they said that love is the most important thing. See, we, we, we live, in a, and this is another quote from this same person, and he said, man, since leaving Christianity, my capacity to love others has grown. And then we've missed something if that's the case. We live in, yes, the Bible says that God is love. And man, we love to edify that scripture above all the other ones. See, what they really mean by our friends who say that God is love, and so this is the most loving thing that we can do is to welcome all love because love is love and God is love. And yet the Bible is very clear that God is love, but love is not God. And that's what we've made it into. One of the things that has broken some in me 
is the consistency of a lot of these people who are still claiming to be Christians but have left evangelical biblical Christianity that one of the central issues that I'm seeing a consistently thing in all of these deconversion stories is the love and acceptance and promotion of the LGBTQ community now, I've even been thinking maybe I need to do a one-off on how we as a church can view the LGBTQ situations from the Bible. Because I think that there's a lot of harm that has been done there, and yet simultaneously, I think the Bible is pretty clear. But so many have left the Christian faith, so many young people, the traditional Christian faith, because they cannot reconcile with what the Bible says about those issues and them having friends who are homosexuals. The last one, or that was the last one, is a cultural issue. Something in politics, the abortion issue, the LBGTQ issue, all of these things. So, The common thread is their view of God, intelligence, pain, grief, suffering, their emotions. It just doesn't feel right anymore. And then the last one, some sort of cultural issue. Hopefully this week in our MCs we can dive into this. Always, a sermon is never done, just so you know. We just run out of time before we have to deliver it. And there's so much more that needs to be said about this, but I'm, I'm going to literally crash a plane <laughs> by letting Jesus end it with words from him. Let me say this before I read that scripture. Brothers and sisters, we need to take this warning seriously. But in Matthew 24, 3, and then I'll be done. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be a sign of your coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be families and famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations And then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, may we listen to the warnings 
of denying Jesus, departing from the local church, may we not be easily deceived. But may we be a people who abide in the person and work of Jesus. And all of that, that good news is coming next week when we talk about these passages. But we need to rest and think through these things in our own hearts. Because often the people that we're listening to affect us in ways that that we are not aware of. So let us pray and seek the Lord this morning with those things in mind. May we not be deceivers and may we not be deceived.